you're listening to the Lost at Sea podcast. I'm Steph, and this episode is about our beliefs about God, heaven, and love. Are we heretics? You decide. What are you meant for? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) What? I was listening back to the recordings, and I pretty much say that word for word. Like, I literally say that, like, we're not really here for anything. Like, literally, like, that is hilarious. Nihilist Uh, five-year-old. Right here. Woo! Well, we're going. Um, Okay, so are we heretics? Let's answer that question first. Episode three. Are we heretics? Are you a heretic? I don't think so, but I think other people will think I am. You're a heretic. Okay. (laughs) In my defense, the person I follow was a heretic, or considered a heretic. Oh, yeah, he was. So I would say Jesus was kind of heretic-y. Heretical? Well, I mean, if you want to sound smart. Um, where, Where do we start? Well, you got to ask me if I'm a heretic. Are you a heretic? Yes. Okay, here we go. Um, so Taylor. Glad that settled. <laughs> Taylor, what is hell? Hell, as a child, <laughs> was a place where you, if you weren't saved, you burned for eternity. eternity. Flames. Flames, like worms. Worms. Eating you. Wait, you said worms? Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's worms in there. Or something. I don't remember. As a kid in church, no. No, they had like these massive, they're supposed to be these big worms in hell that like are eating at you while you're burning. Are you serious? But you never actually like get eaten up. You're just constantly being consumed. I don't know. I don't know. Are about, you making this up? I'm pretty sure this is in the Bible somewhere. No. Well, at least that was my okay. assumption. Keep talking. There's, there's some sort of worms as well as flames. Lots of flames, lots of worms. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I was brought up, was the idea that you went to this place because God, you know, you didn't get saved soon enough, or you had turned your back away from God, and you end up in the eternal pit of fire, the lake of damnation, right? How's that for your 4th of July plans? Hey, just heading up to the lake of damnation. Sorry. (laughs) Okay, I found it. It's like Mark 9, Mm. and it talks about a worm that will not die. Bring the word. Let's say it. So Mark 9, 48 says, Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, what did I say? <laughs> Worms, eternal fire. <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, okay. In Isaiah 66, verse 24, it says, They will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. It means grub or maggot. So I was right. It is ma- a maggot. But Yeah. Well, That's so weird. let's, and then I guess, so here's, here's where I start to go more heretical is because also someone who talks about worms and hell is Jesus, or at least that's what people think he's talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. But then I learned that when he says the word Gehenna, that's not actually some other word for hell as we understand it, or as we were brought up to understand it. Gehenna is a place where they used to dump their trash and the people who were unlovable or who society had decided that we didn't have to love were sent there. That's where the outcasts lived was in a pile of trash where they burned their trash, their waste. Yeah. And they obviously would have maggots, I would assume. Right. right? So, I mean, it all makes sense to me that, yeah, there's some things being referenced there that sounds a lot like scripture even as Jesus understood it as the good Jew that he was. Hey guys, it's Taylor. I'll be popping in every once in a while to help guide the conversation. This is where I'm at with hell and why Jesus had to die. Do you believe hell exists? Um, 
no. At this point in time, I don't believe that hell exists. Why? Because well, the hell that I've I've understood, right? <laughs> because of <that laughs> by state. saying it doesn't yeah. exist, you're obviously you're there. heading there. <laughs> I think for me, uh, it, it started with that idea of like, how can this loving God who wants to forgive us goes out of his way to create a way for forgiveness of redemption? Talks about you know sends his son Jesus, who also goes and talks about compassion and love and even in his final moments on the cross, is still giving people redemption, right? Some sort of forgiveness, even when it seems like they actually deserve the punishment that they were getting. How can that same God then turn around and, well, you didn't say the right words, or you weren't brought up the right way, and too late, you died and didn't say the right words, you're in hell forever. I just can't get my head around that. Or... To think that there are people in other countries who have been brought up so remote, remote from uh, any sort of Christianity that just never had the even heard the word Jesus, let alone the whole story mm-hmm. of salvation. Now those people are now excluded, and they're going to be in hell forever. Forever, right? So no, that that kind of question brought me to a place where I was like, yeah, I just I don't know if I can really get into this. And then I started reading some stuff by dangerous authors like, like Rob Bell. <laughs> Which book? Love Wins. Yeah, I read that too. <laughs> it just brought me to my knees. I was like, oh my gosh, there's no way Gandhi's in hell. <laughs> there's no way. Actually, there could be. I mean, I guess there's a way. But if there's a hell. I mean, I'm just saying there's like way worse things that you can read in the Bible that Christians did that are in hell. like Or that no, are yeah. in heaven. No, I mean, I, I agree. Like, David... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he, he's, he's a got a few things, or a few. Yeah, he's probably killed a few guys. Well, no, I mean, he killed a guy just to get in a girl's pants. Yeah. Oh man, that's like. I mean, she didn't wear pants back then, but. <laughs> to get up all up in the robe, the cloth. Oh man. Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh. He's my lord. <laughs> yeah, no, not anymore. Not anymore. Not after okay. this conversation. <laughs> So yeah, I, I don't believe that hell exists. I believe that our interpretation of scripture has been altered and changed just for the just for us to be able to scare people into salvation. There's a lot that the interpretations do that's not like that's not just related to that. Oh, a hundred percent. But on the topic of hell, we have done a great job. Right. We have done a great job right. of making it scary. Almost cinematic. I mean, I had some plays yeah, in my lifetime that I went to that were horrible. They were like, horrifying. Absolutely scared this shit out of me, definitely. Because I can remember being in one play, actually, where as a child, probably seven, eight, a bunch of us kids all sitting up front because we can't wait to see this beautiful play about the story of Easter. <laughs> and, and no kidding, death entered the room and had this long dark black cloth on like some sort of scary halloween mask like the scream mask like basically yes definitely did he have a scythe i can't remember he definitely had like either that or he had like Like a a some sort of walking stick (laughs) because you know death has a hobble (laughs) he doesn't walk very well he's getting older (laughs) (laughs) oh man i feel like death today precipice man (laughs) Leg day, am I right? <laughs> Death's been at the gym, just busting his ass, trying to sculpt those calves. Because you gotta have good calves if you're death. You know, you gotta chase after people. <laughs> you know, like they say, like death is ca- catching up with you. It's because he was busting his ass at the gym. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> so, anyways. Death walks in and stares down the children for like the 10 children? minutes. Like a Just big group of children. I mean, there were adults there too. But like the people who were the most scared, the most impressionable, oh my God. were definitely there. And a big group huddled up near the front because not only should they see death, but they should be at the foot of the cross. <laughs> Just so messed up in all different kinds of ways. Like I just don't understand how anybody looked at that moment in my life, and it was like, 
Yes. I'm taking my kids back there next year just so they can renew their Christianity. Yeah, it's easy to control your children when they believe in hell. Definitely. I think, and sometimes, like, with vacation Bible schools and stuff like that, I mean, me and and Chelsea have gotten to a place where we are kind of hesitant to let our kids even go into another church, even if they're just visiting with family, because... You don't know what they're teaching your kids and you don't you really don't know how they're talking about hell or how they're talking about the death and resurrection once and and once I kind of shifted from you know like is there a hell then I came to a conclusion that I don't think there is right but that also kind of changed my interpretation of Christ being crucified when I look at that story it used to be Jesus died because I was such a bad sinner. I was so wretched. I was so full of just horrible things that he had to die to pay off all the debt I already had built up, right? The ransom kind of idea. But when I started to look at it from the perspective of Jesus' love threatened authority, Jesus' love threatened the establishment of religion of the day, and and because of that, that threat to the power, they had to silence it because his love was so (laughs) radical that people started realizing that they were worth something, even though everything that had been put in place as far as cultural tradition and things like that had left a whole group of people completely left alone and and on the margins. That's why Jesus had to die is because when you love people where it challenges people to actually have to take of themselves... I don't want to do that. It's easier just to tell somebody, if you don't do this, you're just going to burn in hell. Right. You know, it's a whole other story. So for me, it's like, that's much more powerful to imagine that there isn't a hell. I mean, but we can, we have the ability to create hell and we have the ability to reduce the amount of hell that's already here and how we choose to love others and what we do to show them the love of God and the love of Christ through our example. That's, that's the good news. That's the Great Commission. And I feel like the more that we can get closer to that, even if you still believe in a literal hell, because I think we'll get into maybe some different perspectives there, but even if you if you do believe in a literal hell, there should still be room for the Great Commission not to be where you convert as yeah. many people in any way as like any way possible. Right. And more of like what can we do to showcase this example of love? That you would be willing to lay down your life for others. That's that's where we got to go. That's where it's got to be. So at least for me, that's where I'm at with hell. Yeah. Okay, so we've learned a little bit about my perspective and how I came to believe what I believe about hell. But now let's take a listen to Stephanie's story and her perspective of what hell is. Hell to me is, um, like, I have, like, a twofold perspective on it, and I'm ripping this straight from Greg Boyd, who is one of my, like, I respect him the most out of any theologian that, um, I've ever read. And he talks about, like, it doesn't make any sense that a loving God would punish somebody for eternity, when they lived a finite life, like the pun, he says the punishment um, doesn't fit the crime, right? Mm. So if I live, I'm, if I die right now, you reach across here and kill me, like <laughs> right now, I would die, obviously, because that's what the word "kill" means. Um, but I'm 26. Why would God allow me to be tortured? for eternity if I've only lived 26 years worth of sin, right? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And so um, what he suggests, Greg Boyd suggests, is that um, if a person consciously chooses not to enter into the presence of God repeatedly after repeated attempts at reconciliation, um, God stops supporting that person's existence. 
like at that point the most merciful thing that God could do for that person is to stop supporting their existence. So I think that that theologically is where I might stand um, if I'm being conservative on the issue. But if I'm being um, liberal on the issue, it's that it, it's not that it doesn't exist, but that it's a choice that somebody chooses for themselves to, to separate themselves from the presence of God. Hell, to me, is just a separation from the presence of God, and that's backed up by the story of um, Lazarus, uh, not the one that rose from the dead, the other one who, uh, I think he was a rich man, and he died, and he sees somebody up in heaven, and they converse with each other. Um, and so that indicates to me that it's not necessarily a place, but more of a state of being, of like consciously separating yourself from the presence of God. So basically, you choose hell for yourself every moment that you choose not to be in the presence of God. And my hope is, like, if I'm being more liberal on the issue, my hope is, is that that process continues on forever until the person eventually reconciles with God. But I do think that the choice to be there or to not be there has to be there. Like, the choice to enter into the presence of God has to be there, mm. or else it's not love. It's not real love. It's not real love. You right. Know? If you... Um, held a gun to Chelsea's head and was like, you need to love me. And Chelsea was like, okay, does that mean that she loves you? Of course not. Of course not, right? Because right. there's no choice. I mean, she has a choice to love you or die. You yeah. know what I mean? But that's really not, not even that much of a choice. And so that's what I see kind of hell operating as. Yeah. You know what I mean? Related directly to the concept of hell is the character of God. If God has control over all things, what hell is tells us about who God is. So who is God? What is God like? Yeah, who is God? I have no clue. Um, like I said, if, if I do believe that he exists... Um, Got some questions. I got some things to say. No, I don't even have any questions at this point. I just got things to say, you know. Because um, there's a lot of stuff that happened in the name of, in his name, yeah. to me, that I am not okay with. And I understand that he didn't do it, but it's like, you know, this isn't just a problem with the church that I went to. It's a problem, or the churches that I went to. It's a problem with a lot of different churches. I know so many people who have been hurt in the same way that I've been hurt. And what, is, you know, like, what are what is he going to do about it? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and I think that's why also I referred to him as he pronouns, because I'm mad at him. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, I guess. <laughs> I mean, and I can see if you have a child... And your child throws a rock through somebody's window, and they're you know they're not eighteen, right? They're they're young kids doing kid things that kids do when they're by themselves getting into trouble. Who has to pay for that window? The kid, or the parent of the kid who right. threw the rock right. rock through the window? Like it, it, like well, at some parent, point, if I threw a rock through the window, my parents would have to pay for it. You know? I mean, yeah, at least at first, and then you can like. <laughs> Right, but and you hold your kid accountable mm -hmm. for the actions or whatever you're gonna do, but like, you can't just say like, oh, well, it's just what the kids do. No, right. like there's there's still accountability to the creator of the kid. Right. The creator of the kid, which, in this conversation, seems to be God. Right. And there's just a bunch of kids throwing a bunch of rocks through windows, and God's just windows. like, oh, just kids being kids down there, <laughs> you know. Right. Like, I don't buy it. Right. I just don't. I don't buy it. So, yeah, for me, it's it's definitely that. It's just like, hands off. Let's yeah. just see what creation does. It's kind of random and messy, right. but I kind of like that. And then know. I'm not supposed to be upset when it happens. Of course not. You know? No. Yeah. Especially not at God. Yeah, right. But I, I don't think that even reflects 
scripture in a, in a good light because scripture is full oh, of yeah. a bunch of David, pissed off people at God. Like da- they're just David called like fire down on his enemies. Like he's like, God, I want you to destroy all the people who oppose me. And I'm like, oh, I just want to not have to worry about the future. Right. right. Like you don't even have to destroy right. my enemies. Just, just make my enemies not be idiots. Right. Or just like make them not be in my life anymore. Yeah, yeah, or just separate me completely from my enemies somehow, but, like, you don't have to even destroy them. I don't even wish that much death on my enemies. I just, just, just take care of the problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But don't, yeah, I I don't understand that. But even that, like, there's plenty of, of examples in scripture of people pissed off at God. They felt like that literally there's scriptures in Lamentation that describe God as taking their face and grinding it into gravel. Yep. Like that's how they felt that God feeling. was treating them. Yeah. Or and and maybe it's the hands and the feet of God that are treating him that way. Exactly. But honestly, like it's it's kind of all the same there. I mean, I, I I've definitely felt like that, and I think if you're reading it from a biblical perspective, you can come to God boldly and cuss him out while you're mowing the grass. I did. And I don't poor. care. If it's okay. I did. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's where right. that's where it's at. And I think if if you were in that time reading those things, it would have seemed like they were swearing and cussing right. at God, not just, right. you know, because they, they weren't using words like fuck and shit and damn. Maybe yeah. some damn in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> I read once that Jesus swore in one of his parables. Really? Yeah. I don't know where, though. I, I, was, I was reading a tweet once from John Mark McMillan, the guy who wrote How He Loves, by the way. Is it, okay, sidebar, is it unforeseen or sloppy wet? He originally wrote it as sloppy wet. Okay, but like, what are you saying when Oh, it's definitely sloppy wet. Uh, One, just just to put this in, in, like, on a recording and just say it, it's definitely not unforeseen. Shut that is, the fuck it up. is sloppy wet kiss. Come on. Here's why. Because I heard him explain. I it. know what the story is. I love the story. I, I, love I think it too, but... when you hear like <laughs> about this perspective of like the connection between the human race and divinity is just messy. Yes, that, that explains everything. It's sloppy, but it's it's passionate and it's real and it's in the moment and it's. It's raw, but it's it's sloppy. Have you ever had a sloppy wet kiss? Yeah, I get one every day from Abel, my it's son. Gross, right? You always wipe your face afterward, right? Oh yeah, yeah. He gets spit all over me. It's right. disgusting. It's disgusting. Yeah. Sometimes I'm mad at him, but at the same time, I would never stop him from kissing me. And that kind of seems the relationship with God is Whatever. pretty accurate. That there are times where I'm just like, oh God, why is this so messy and gross? But at the end of the day, like the things that bring me the most frustration, like kids are also the same things that bring me the most joy. And that just that just sums everything about my relationship with God up, just right there. It's just like, it's messy and it's frustrating, and right now, it's just aggravating as hell. Like, God, I don't want to kiss. I don't want to kiss from you right now. <laughs> but, like, at the end of the day, it's like, I, I welcome the sloppy wet kiss. That's gross. Ah. Blech. Yeah. <laughs> so you're an unforeseen person? I am an unforeseen person. I've heard, I've heard also people say passionate. No, that's Instead stupid. Of unforeseen. No, it's either unforeseen or sloppy wet. <laughs> there is no passion. Why are you being so dogmatic about the lyrics? Listen, I have to be dogmatic about something. Exactly. I'm right. not dogmatic. <laughs> We're about not legalistic else, about anything else. Except sloppy wet is not what it is. <laughs> it's not okay. All right, and here's my defense of it. All right. I need to talk to John Mark McMillan. Unforeseen just no, seems stop. like someone listen, didn't get consent. That's I'm, all I'm no. saying. Okay, listen. All right. So I watched this show called Orphan Black. It's very good, and you should watch it. Um, shameless plug for something that I'm not getting paid to promote. Um, <laughs> Yet. Yet. <laughs> One day. I mean, well, I mean, the fifth season's the last season, and it, they're on the fifth season right now. Anyway, um, so there's this one scene where um, one character who is gay um, is talking to her girlfriend who is gay <laughs> and they're in a lab and they're being cute or whatever and it's like the the first time that they're working in the lab together and it's adorable right anyway so the main like one of the main characters 
who is the one that I first mentioned. She takes her girlfriend's hand and kind of like spins around her and like leans up against the table to where her girlfriend has to be very close to her and then they kiss. And it's the sweetest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. It was unforeseen. It was wonderful. And it was intimate. And it was Not passionate. sloppy. It was not sloppy. It was beautiful. <laughs> and it's everything that I want in life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, just that level of love with somebody else that you can be that um, spontaneous with your affection. Yeah. And it be met with such... Openness, openness and, and yeah, yeah. and just re- receives it. So that's my defense of unforeseen. That's a great defense. It is a great defense. I, I like that. I love that imagery. Yeah. I, I mean, know. and that's, I think that's what I mean. Like, I don't want it to always seem like I'm just anti-God, mm-hmm. you know, but I, <laughs> you know, just sometimes it, uh, it, the reality of the way things are can be so overwhelming that I can come off very, like... Ah, uh, dark. Like, I've just, I can't escape that reality. Well, either. you can because we're talking about it. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, not, and I don't want to, like, yes, I escape it because I can, I can acknowledge even that sentiment of yeah. intimacy and that there's no true scientific explanation for it. I mean, it could be that we're just trying to, like, our, our brain just makes us feel that way so that we continue to reproduce. <laughs> so our brain wants us to have those great feelings of love and intimacy. Mm-hmm. But all of those feelings are just evolutionary triggers like that have to happen so that the human race continues. That's not true for me. Oh, okay. Explain. I'm gay. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what is she going to say? How could she possibly come back with any sort of answer? When I love a woman, (laughs) it's strictly because I love her. It's so funny. Like, like, like the one thing that can derail any sort of scientific case for there not to be a purpose in life is even that, even though love can be explained from some sort of evolutionary need for survival, Stephanie, well, (laughs) Stephanie then takes being gay the one thing that Christians would never want to use as a defense for there being a God and there being a purpose and uses it as the one stone wall defense against a scientific explanation for what love is. Like, that is beautiful. That is the best thing I've ever heard in my entire freaking life. Oh, my God. There you go, Christians. If you want to try to knock someone down from a scientific case, that's that's perfect. It's not <laughs> about not reproduction. It's about love. They're not. Oh, man. I just, I love that. That was like my we- favorite thing. <laughs> Hey guys, just wanted to take a moment to tell you about our Patreon page. If you didn't know, Patreon is a website that allows you to donate to creative projects that you believe in. If you'd like to find out more, visit us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash lost at sea PC. So on that note, LGBTQIA plus issues, aka in from my terminology queer people in the church going on like with what we've talked about with with hell and with like who the character of god is um do you think that like what what do you think about um the state of the church as far as like how they treat us and how um, that has had an effect on the church itself. Mm. Like, not necessarily coming at it from, like, I can come at it from, like, how yeah. I feel and how a lot of us feel. For you know, sure. But, like, how do you think that it affects the church Yeah, not having us? So, coming from my perspective, I, I look at the church now as an empire, uh, or at least a group of people living in the empire and being supported by the empire, much like 
the Pharisees and Roman rule of the day of Jesus, right? Because at the time, the Jewish people were the oppressed people. They were the people who were being marginalized, right? And now Christians at that moment were even more on the margins because there were so few of them and the kind of love that they were talking about was just so radical that nobody nobody wanted to take them serious because they knew that their expectations were going to be raised on how they treat people and how they love others. That was what Jesus did. He challenged others to love more. So even when you hear it said in your own book, Jesus is saying, but I say, do something even more, to love them even more, welcoming them in even more. So when I look at that painting, that portrait of Christians being in the role of the oppressed, rather than being a, an American Christian in the role of empire, it really changes everything. So when I look at the church and how we treat people in the LGBTQ community now, it looks a lot like how the Roman rule of the day and Pharisees were treating Jesus and Christians of his day. They were on the outskirts. We had already, everybody made up their mind that it was okay to not love these people as much as everybody else. So anytime the church gets caught up in that kind of practice of isolating an entire group of people, because it's easier, it gets you off the hook. That's one whole group of people that you don't really have to love, not in the same way as your other neighbors, right. your straight neighbors. You can love your straight neighbors, but the gay neighbors, keep a distance, right? right? Invite might, them to church. You might catch the gay. Right. Just give them your little cardboard card that has your service times on it, oh and then God. just plant the seed, but you don't got to water it or do right. anything else to tend right. for it. Like, that, that is how I look at how we treat, I mean, many different groups, but in this specific topic the community of LGBTQ people, we do a very bad job at looking at ourselves in the eye and acknowledging that we have switched our roles in the world and we are no longer this small group of people fighting for love for the Gentiles and the Jews alike. Right. We're not those people anymore. Right. We get to create the boundaries. We create the rules. We build those walls. The way that we, the way that the church can isolate groups of people is definitely unhealthy, um, but I think it's just not even Christ-like. It's it's nothing compared to what Christ did. Everyone that they said you you shouldn't be hanging out with the tax collectors. What are you doing allowing that woman to wash your feet? How could you possibly hang out with them? Right. That's exactly what they told Jesus. How can you have room for those people? Right. How can we honestly look ourselves in the eye and even consider that the stance that people are less than us based on our beliefs is beyond me, right? But then, you know, for me, it started around 18. I started working at a church and I started to meet, you know, I got out of the house and you're meeting lots of different types of people and you start to realize, like, man, People who are different than me, because at, at the time, at 18, I was not affirming. Um, I had been raised to love the sinner, but hate the sin kind of thing. Right. Me too. Yeah, and that that worked for a long time. That that explanation worked for a long time. But once I started to, you know, I, I read some different books like Love Wins or, you know, I just started having these questions that I couldn't ignore anymore, which was if people are born gay now again if you're a christian and you've been brought up in the same way that we have you immediately have already been met with this stance that god wouldn't do that god wouldn't make someone be born gay and then just damn them to hell right. but god will create whole groups of people born in the wrong parts of the world mm -hmm. and send them to hell mm -hmm. so again the character of God really comes up a lot here mm -hmm. because for me, you know, I, I could all, even at that time, I could justify all the horrible things going on in the world with, well, you know, humans are making this destruction, not God. And again, when it comes to people in the LGBTQ community, we're making these decisions again to leave people on the side of the road 
and not help them the way that we should be. Mm-hmm. So that question of if people really are born gay, how can God, a loving God, who fights for redemption and grace, damn these people to hell? I just, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it anymore. Now, it was also right around the end of uh, about a two-year stance where I worked at a church, and once I got hurt by the church, I didn't really base any of my beliefs on if the Bible said it or even if there was an interpretation of the Bible that would allow myself to still be affirming. I wasn't even there yet. So when it first really started to hit me, it was just like, I just don't feel like this is right. Right. I don't feel like it's okay. Like, I don't, you know. Yeah, it wasn't, like, there was nothing that I was going to read in Scripture after being directly hurt by the church that was going to convince me that it mattered if the Bible said it was right or wrong at that moment. Then a couple years go by, and I found myself back in church, and I kind of just, I had to wrestle with this some more um, a couple years later. And finally, just started reading some things that uh, opened my eyes to um, different different interpretations of the Bible, which it's kind of, at the time, it was scary to think that maybe everything I've been brought up to believe about the Bible uh, is wrong. That's kind of how it was at first. But then being wrong, being right, all of that kind of just went out the window. And what I started to realize is that the beautiful part of sacred text, specifically the Bible, is that you can read one scripture and come back to it a couple weeks later and it apply to your life in the same intensity mm-hmm. as it did a couple weeks ago, but in a whole Different new way. way. Yeah. That is God. Right. That's, I mean, that's the limitations and the power of language yeah. that, that I feel like God had some sort of influence on when he created us. So like for me, that's part of the Bible. That's part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. And so as I started to read the Bible and get different insights and different perspectives from many different people like Rob Bell or, uh, you know, recently Pete Enns has a lot of good uh, material on interpreting the Bible in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I started to get into that practice of, of living intention and saying, this is what I know that I feel about this, this subject. This is how I feel about it. This is how I feel like God is pushing on my heart to believe. And then being able to go and read scripture word for word in the context that it was really written in and start seeing that, oh my gosh, this doesn't even apply to the people that I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. You know, like Old Testament references to homosexuality or homosexual acts, a lot of times those those were referring to like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't homosexuality. That the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was in fact a lack of hospitality yeah. for the foreigner. Right. Now, who does that sound like? Right. Who doesn't want to take in the refugees? Right. What is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? We start to sound a lot more like Sodom and Gomorrah in America. Yeah. When you look at it from the lens of not being hospitable to our neighbors right. and the foreigners. Like that, to me, speaks volumes about the problem with our perspective of the Bible. So when I look at those things... Even in the New Testament, when Paul talks about homosexual acts, he's, he's looking at people in uh, Greek, people who are participating in wretched acts of sexuality that are, are not in the norm for anybody. Like pederasty. Yes. And, um, like having sex for the worship of gods. Yeah. You know what I mean? My understanding uh, is that it was not uncommon, uncommon at all for older yeah. Greek men to kind of their idea of mentoring to take a young boy and have his way with him. Mm -hmm. Like that is not a loving relationship for straight or homosexual people. Right. It's just, it's not. So to take the rules and the guidelines that we apply to, to heterosexual couples and then not turn around and apply that same lens to homosexual couples. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, it's just, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, it, it, it is, it's, it's not biblical mm-hmm. to look at anyone like that who are in a committed relationship. Right. Loving each other in a monogamous relationship, committed to one person, 
loving them like Christ would love the world. Like that, that's all you, I mean, for me, that's all I needed to say. You know what? I am affirming, I'm a Christian, and I think it's biblical. And that's, that's where I'm at with it. I do want to make uh, an addendum to what you said because there are, um, and I'm not familiar with them at all because I'm not poly, but um, there are um, defend, like biblical defenses of, of polyamorous relationships too. So it's not even just like being committed to one other person either. Yeah. Um, though opinions on that will vary. Um, Definitely. But widely, as widely as they vary on um, gay marriages and relationships, or queer marriages and relationships. And yeah. In, in, in the Bible. Um, but I just wanted to make that For sure. clear that like, there I, are... I would say too, I guess, and to make my statement even more clear, like when I, I guess when I say guidelines too, I, I would say most of that should include, not necessarily even if it is like a polyamorous relationship, but just mutual respect yeah. and kindness totally. for the other person totally. is a really consent. good place to start. Yeah, yeah. consent. Yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. In this next conversation, Stephanie and I talk about the original church and how that looks differently from the church that we experience today. We also talk about the importance of conversation and not being afraid to ask scary questions. One thing that I do want to point out is that like from the perspective of like what could the church learn from us? Yeah. I think that the biggest thing that I see, okay, so the biggest thing that I see in the Bible that like now when I read in the Gospels now that now when I read it is um, Jesus Jesus's mission while he was here was like inherently queer um, because the word queer is it means difference um, and like I said before like we have a tendency to just scoop up people um, in who are who don't who don't receive um, things as a result of being straight or as a result of conforming to binarized notions of gender or don't conform to whatever that may be, you know what I mean? Right. Um, but, and Jesus did that too. Um, because, so back in his day, boys would be trained from zero to 12 in rabbinical schools, um, to eventually hopefully become a rabbi like at the age of 12 um a a more experienced rabbi would be like hey you're smart i'm going to take you under my wing and train you up to be a rabbi right but if you didn't make the cut like if you were not picked by a rabbi um you would go back to your family and you would um work in a trade um with with your usually your father or generations of your family or whatever um notice who jesus's disciples were they were all almost all tradesmen yeah um notice that he himself was himself a carpenter, was a carpenter. He wasn't a rabbi. He didn't, i mean he, didn't, he was a rabbi yeah, he but was, he wasn't but like, yeah. <laughs> by the standards right. that were set there and he picked adults you know what i'm saying like yeah. and so what jesus did was he took the people that were rejected from norm the normative institution of the rabbinical schools yeah and and walked around with he them he cultivated and, yeah, exactly, something in them exactly yeah. oh yeah and so he he was essentially like it from my view um his whole mission was inherently queer <laughs> you know what i'm saying um mm-hmm. and he also uh for, he, he did this in everything. Like, he did this in literally everything that he did. Everything that he did was um, intentionally... It, it, it intentionally went against everything that society was telling him to do at the time. Yeah. Or was normal at the time. So, take, for instance, when he was um, at uh, Mary and Martha's house. And I forget which one was cooking and cleaning and doing all this stuff another one was sitting down at his feet being taught by him and back then that didn't happen like he was a a rabbi makeshift rabbi right yeah um he was a rabbi and he was teaching a woman and he was upset that the other person was doing what society was telling her she had to do Mm -hmm. and prepare the table for 
the guest, which who was Jesus. He, I, don't, I don't think he got mad at her. I think he's like, why are you doing this? You know what I mean? Right. But he's teaching a woman. And, yeah. So, anyway, like, I think that, like, that kind of informs my reading of scripture now. It's like, wow, this is, like, us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. this is us, you know? And I think that um, the church really suffers by not having that logic, like, the logic of our identity as a community and as various sub-communities. Yeah. I, I really think the church suffers from not having that logic in in place. In, in place because um, that would destabilize the idea that the church is a normative institution. You know what I mean? And right. it would make us less susceptible. Which is hilarious. That yeah. that the concern of the church yeah. is to appear normative right. in any way it at is. all. It just it boggles right. my mind. I can't, I can't wrap my head around that. And and again, I I need to be empathetic because I grew up with the yeah. the understanding that the way the church was ran and the way that the church uh, is ran today was completely the right way. It's completely normal, and that when we isolated groups, it was it was for a reason. So again, I, I don't want to I don't want to act like I've always just had these beliefs. But once I had the epiphany that we were doing things wrong, even if, again, there might be people, I think you've had experiences with people who are not affirming, but still loved you in a way. My parents are one that, of them. Yeah, that, that, yeah, or two of them, I should say. That still bring you life in yeah. some way, you know? Yeah. So, again, it's, there is some hint mm-hmm. of a possibility that you don't even have to abandon all of that and still love the way you should. The problem is you have people who are actually growing in church and maybe they're unaware that the church they're in isn't affirming because sometimes churches are really good at being sneaky about that and appear like they're affirming and they're really not. But then the right at the moment that you're actually growing, they snatch the opportunity away from you. Mm -hmm. That's just, we're, we're doing it wrong. No matter where you stand on this whole issue or in the issues of the LGBTQ community, uh, you, you can't get away from that. That Jesus went beyond the boundaries that were set before him, and he loved anyways. Yeah. And he didn't just love from a distance. He was there sitting in their houses with the people. So, And some would say cultivating relationships. Some would say just witnessing. I beg, I, I really think it was cultivating relationships mm-hmm. because I think that's the only way that true change happens yeah. is through real conversation where people are constantly validating the things that you say that validate them, but mm-hmm. are also calling you out on the things that you may say that are kind of misguided and not true. Right. You know? So I think that's, that's a good thing, but the church will only validate the things that they already believe. Yeah. And then they cast out anybody who says different. And so they or never have to change. Questions. Right. Oh, you can't ask questions. No. Not publicly, anyways. Yeah. I was told... You can be shut down in a room oh, yeah. one-on-one with somebody. Right. I was told... <laughs> but you can't ask questions in front of people. By a pastor that, like, because I was, like, really, really into theology. Like, I mean, I was reading everything that I could get my hands on. I still have books on books of stuff from Greg Boyd and N.T. Wright and Rob Bell and all of these different people. And... I remember um, sitting down with a pastor and I was saying, I was asking him if he knew about open theology and he's like, yeah. And then he was like, do you know who is the guy that, you know, espouses it most prominently? And I was like, Greg Boyd, you know, cause I love Greg Boyd, you know? And um, he was like, yeah, just be careful with that. And I'm like, what does that mean? I mean, I didn't ask him that because at the time I respected it. I mean, I still do as like a human being, but like I respected his authority. And now I ha- I have just as much authority as he does because I have the same Holy Spirit that he does. I didn't understand that then. <laughs> not yeah, not even right. to mention just the Holy Spirit. Right. But you have you have the capacity right. and the ability to read things, learn them 
and then Make dissect what opinion. you yeah yeah, yeah like yeah. Well, cultivate I mean, your own beliefs yeah. and your own thoughts i'm just saying like i have just as much of an authority to say something is true as he does because i'm directed by the holy spirit i mean not now because i am mad at jesus but um, <laughs> not right here in this right, moment but like you know anyway so so i was like now i'm like what the hell does that mean you know, be careful. Like what? It's gonna destroy my life. Hey, guess what? <laughs> it already has. Right. Like I mean, my spiritual life, I yeah. guess. But you know, like, what does that mean? Like, are we going to like, are we going to tell everybody not to ask questions? Everybody not to know theology? Yeah. Like, is it a threat to you? If I mean, maybe this wasn't the case. Maybe it was genuine concern from my brain, which is a fair thing to say. Oh, I yeah. Kinda You're going to be wrecked. I know. For sure. Um, but at the same time, it's like, am I not, like, are we going to tell people not to pursue this? Like, is are other people who are not in leadership well, positions not allowed to know the same things as the leader? Like the the supreme leader? Yeah. Snoke? No, I'm just kidding. Well, the problem is... I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we, we romanticize the resurrection... Yeah. Right. Well, but we yeah. we kind of like just sweep over the death really quick. Well, I mean, that, and and it's it's both. I mean, yeah. But so I'm I'm just saying like the you, thing that matters. You've is been the created. It, it, yeah, it definitely matters. But I'm saying this like we've kind of touched on the idea that that the the church, you know, it, it resurrects itself, but oh, it yeah. has to die oh, first. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I think like part of that being is like we look at Christians, mm-hmm. and and. You know, I've heard it said you kind of break it up into you have your construct that you were handed, right? And then you deconstruct and then you reconstruct. Yes. There's three stages and all of them are equally as important, right? Because there is a part of your life where you're going to deconstruct everything you've been told. Yeah. And and I think there might be the good intentions here, which there's definitely people just trying to limit your ability to learn more and question their authority. They don't want that either. But there are people out there, and I'm sure there's some listening, that are just concerned about the idea that if you rip apart this construct mm-hmm. that you've been handed, it's very you're doomed. Yeah. And we don't want you to be doomed. Right. So just keep it all together. But that's just not the way it works. And it's painful. You have to have the construct. You have to deconstruct. Right. And then you get to rebuild something. But there is that part in the middle, the deconstruction. Yeah. That's just as important. And I don't think that the church, or definitely not the leadership in the church, that we're not confident in the people, that we're not confident we're in confident Christianity, in yeah, to really handle that. Right. I think God came up with that process. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I think that's, that's just kind of uh, where I stand on that. Like, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, but we have to, hopefully we encourage people to just believe what they want to believe. Yeah. But do their own homework. Right. And when you hear something, something that we say, that you just like, oh, no, 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 no. Rather than just saying no, and that's not true. Defend your no. Yes. Go and, and read it for yourself. Yeah. And then just come back to it. But I'm just, that that's kind of where I'm at. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to ever make someone feel like they have to believe all of these progressive or liberal ideas right. that we talk about. Right. I just... I just I mean, want you to talk about it. It's my ultimate goal. I'm trying to brainwash everybody that I meet. Uh, yeah, I forgot to tell everybody we are converting you to the progressive Jesus uh, Christianity, which is obviously way better and way more right because we have it all figured out for you. Because we have a microphone and you don't. <laughs> right, and you're not here to correct <laughs> us. So, ha. No, but just make up your own mind. Right. Hear these conversations, get all pissed off, and go read something else. You know, that's actually how I, like, eventually came out. Is I heard something that I didn't agree with. Um, it pissed me off. I started researching. I came across something that changed my mind. And I'm, like, you know, waving the pride flag now. Yeah. Literally, right now. I have it in my hand. Right. And I'm just waving it around. Like an and idiot. in case you guys didn't know, like, we didn't just wake up one day and decide, hmm, we're just going to... We're going to believe everything that we were told to believe right. uh, is wrong. Right. And we're, I mean, it didn't happen like that. It wasn't just like all of a sudden I changed and decided I was going to think about everything I founded my entire life and identity on. I, I obviously wouldn't have chosen to do that. It was way more comfortable in the boat. Okay. I wanted to be in the boat.
Alright, so maybe we didn't really make it clear in the first episode, but why the heck are we even doing this? Why is it important to us to feel like we need to have these conversations? Let's take a listen. Based on all of this theology talk that we're, we're engaging in, it's like, I don't know about you, but all of this to me is just like a mental exercise, honestly, because I haven't had to have this conversation in a long time because I haven't been forced in my spaces. I haven't been forced to justify my existence at all. Mm. Um, and I think that there is a peace and like a rest that comes from being in my spaces with people that don't make me like justify, um, being in a relationship with a woman if I choose to be in one or getting married to a woman if I choose to get married to a woman or whatever like pe- pe- my like my people <laughs> like we don't question each other on that right there's a there's a comfort in that um and I think that uh the reason that I just don't engage in this anymore even when people ask me to it's just that like to me when I'm talking to somebody who is straight and who is married or and or who is married, who's in the church, who's in leadership, has power in the church, and I'm they're asking me to justify why it is I believe this. Like I can have this conversation with people, but I choose not to because they're not asking me to get any sort of perspective that they might adopt for themselves. They're not asking me because... Right. It's not an equal platform. Right. It's not at all. Because they have... Like, they they can ask me that question. I can give them my answer. And then they can be like, oh, that was interesting. And then they can go and tell other people, all of their other sh- straight friends or so-called straight friends. Like, statistically, not everybody in that church is going to be straight, right? Right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you just can't tell. But... No, they'll go back to their friends and be like, oh, I had a talk with Stephanie, and this is what she said. And then they seem so open-minded and so progressive because, you know, they actually listened to me. Right. And the thing is, is that, like, I don't want to be that. Like, I joke about my, like, being, me being the token gay or whatever, and it's totally a joke, right? Um, But there are some situations where I become that, and I don't like it. I don't want to have to do that, and... Um, so all of this right now, when I'm talking like this is just a mental exercise because the position that I'm in, in relation to the church is I have no power whatsoever. As soon as I came out as bi, um, people stopped listening to what I said. Um, I was affirming of, uh, of gay marriages and relationships, um, before I came out and people listened to me and people, even if they disagreed with me. They would be like, okay, I can see where you're coming from, and I, I can at least talk to you about this now. Yeah. It's just like, like they don't respect me as a person anymore right. um, when I talk about this because I have a stake in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm just trying to justify my sin at this point. Right. So. Yeah, I, I think that, I think when we first brought up talking about that, that, that definitely clarifies a lot for me, that... I think it's important also to note that if you are, um, like if you're a white person or if you're a white male, especially, you haven't been stripped of that influence yet. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I've, I'm affirming and that might take some sort of credibility in the eyes of, of others, uh, from my knowledge. No, it does. Yeah. But, but at the same time, it's, it's still like as if, before you came out and you were advocating for same-sex marriage, even people still had some ability to respect what you said, mm-hmm. right? So I think that kind of like for me, you have stakes in this. Mm-hmm. You you have the ability to be damaged by the response of, the response of the person in power that you're having these conversations with. I don't. Right. So I think what's really important is for people to understand why. We, as a straight male, we should be having these conversations with others who don't have the same beliefs or haven't come to the same conclusions because we don't have the same kinds of stakes. And we do, 
I mean, s- smaller ones, but my whole life is not, it, it can't be, um, based on my sexuality, my life will not be destroyed right. by the church, right. you know? And for me, it just, it, it ups the responsibility for me to have this conversation. So I appreciate your willingness to take part in conversations that, that really, again, like you said, you've, you've got to a place where you're in a, a healthy community that's not going to destroy you because of your beliefs right. <laughs> that differ well, from them. Well, I mean, there's a, yeah. I mean, for other things, yes. Other things, but from, from <laughs> right. a religious perspective right. or from a stance on God or a stance on hell right, or a stance right. on who is God or all of these questions that we've talked about today, you know, I think it, it it's it's awesome to be able to have your input. Yeah. Because too. Because I like I am having these conversations because I want to and you're not in the church anymore. No. Right? So I I'm having these conversations because I believe in reconciliation. Um and I believe in restoration. Mm. Like I'm not here to say like, like I'll jokingly say to people who are also queer, like, oh man, I hate straight people. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, just because, and it does—it's not necessarily true all the time. Stephanie, words hurt. Are you offended? Gosh. Words so matter. inconsiderate. I know. But no, what I'm trying to say is, is that like, yes, like I'll joke, you know, like within my circles, like. I hate straight people, they suck, right? But I don't actually. Like, I would love nothing more than to be able to um, find ways that we can um, include straight people in our vision for humanity going forward. Because one of my friends said it this way, his name's Connor, and I adore him so much. Um, But he said, if your vision... And I'm paraphrasing here. If your vision for the future after the revolution's over leaves anyone out, literally anyone out, it is a piece of shit and you need to get rid of it because it's not worth it. And I think that that's absolutely true. Um, Does that mean that people don't need to change? Absolutely not. Like, they do. Yeah. There are things that, that... um, that I really think need need to change in order for all of this to happen and reconciliation and restoration to happen. But that doesn't mean that I want to abandon um, people just because they are normative. I'm on the other side now. But yeah, like, does that make sense? It does. And I, I think the other thing then, taking it back to what this episode has been more about is the things that would make us appear as heretics to others. Mm-hmm. Uh, which then allows them to to remove us from their right. community, right? Mm-hmm. Going back to just a difference in beliefs yeah. or a difference in interpretation of small things like the Bible or big things like actual people living in a community that we have decided to cancel out, mm-hmm. right? Like all of these things come back to that idea that we have to get to a point where we can love others and have conversations with others even when they don't agree with us and then leave and still say that person is a brother or sister in Christ to me. I'm still sitting at the table having communion with that person. I love the imagery of the table. The table nullifies hierarchy because you're all equally sitting at the table. The food is there and you're just having a meal with yeah. And I think that like communion and like the Eucharist is something that has always drawn me to the faith um, because it's inviting, you know, people mm-hmm. to come and share in communion and fellow just For sure. fellowship. I hate using the, both of those words because, you know, Christianese yeah. or whatever, but like like community, you know, sharing a meal. Yeah. Um, sharing resources. I don't know. There's just something, conversation. Something about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, that you learn things about people yeah. when you sit down and have. No, it's so true. Yeah. It's so true in ways that I think are sacred. 
You know? I think so too. If any, if I was gonna call anything sacred at this point, it would be it food. Would be, it would be food. No, yeah. seriously, and not like, even in a funny way. Right, right, yeah, right. No, yeah, I'm yeah. being serious. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. So. Me too. Anyway, so yeah, like even though this is just like a for me a mental exercise, um, I really do uh, value the idea of a conversation, and I value the idea of communion and um, and community. Me too. Thank you for listening to Lost at Sea. If you'd like to stay up to date on all of our latest episodes, follow us on facebook.com forward slash lost at CPC or on Twitter at lost at CPC. Also, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash lost at CPC.